Good morning, you lovely, lovely people, and welcome to Sunday. Uh, yes, yes, I'm glad that you're catching on to my little catchphrase. That's good, I like it, thank you. <laughs> For those of you who don't know me, my name's Dale, and I am one of the elders here at NLCC, which, as you've already heard this morning, is one church that meets in multiple locations. We're back in our current preaching series this morning, rooted in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to cover some of the key points found in chapter 8 of Hebrews, and I'm going to read, I'm going to read that text. I'll give you guys a second just if you want to find that. We'll start at verse 6 of chapter 8. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, Lord. I pray, may it do us much good as we explore it and unpack it and consider it this morning. Amen. There's quite a lot of content there just in those few verses, but we're not going to probably cover every verse uh, quite like that line by line. We're going to dip in and out of some of the main themes in that text. But my message this morning is called... Better promises for a better covenant. Now I know, I was reminded this morning that when I say the word covenant, sometimes people go, oh, I don't want to know about that. that that's complicated. But I want to try and encourage you this morning and say, I'm going to make it as easy as I can because it's got to be easy for me to understand it, right? So I'm going to share with you what I've learned. The first thing I want to say is this title, Better Promises for a Better Covenant, kind of begs a few questions. Question like, who's making promises? How are they better? And what's a covenant anyway? The aim of my message today is that by the time I finish, we'll all be able to at least answer those questions. With that in mind, the first thing I want to do is look at what is a covenant? What does that term actually mean? Well, in terms of the Bible, a covenant means coming together. It's an agreement. It's a commitment 
between two or more parties. And it's a bond that often comes with responsibilities, with roles, and with promises. The closest thing we have to it in everyday life that we might encounter is the covenant of marriage, where two people come together and they lovingly agree to commit to be bound to one another in role and responsibility as husband and wife. And that agreement is based on promises that each person makes to the other. So what's a covenant? Well, we could define it as a commitment between two parties based on promises, a little bit like a marriage. Does that make sense? So when I say the word covenant, you guys hear agreement. When I say the word covenant, you guys think promises. When I say the word covenant, you guys think responsibilities. Is that okay? The next logical question is, who then is making covenant promises? And to answer that, we're going to look at the first part of Hebrews 8, verse 6. I'll read it again. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God, based on better promises. So this verse makes it clear that the two main parties involved in the covenant, in this better covenant and better promises, are God and us. It's God who's making better promises and establishing a better covenant with us. And it's Jesus who's mediating, interceding. And all those words mean is getting involved so that he can bring about, he can enable, and he can ensure that the covenant comes together. Now that really just leaves us with one question left that I started with. It's going to be a really short preach, right? Don't get too excited. (laughs) I want to spend the majority of our time today looking at the answer to the question, how are these promises better? How is this covenant better? And the reason I want to spend so much time there is because there is so much depth, so much joyful truth to be uncovered here that we are only going to scratch the surface. Nevertheless, we'll have a good go at bringing some conclusions out of it. Okay. Now, it stands to reason, if we want to understand how one thing is better than another thing, what we need to do is compare the two together. That makes sense, right? So this better covenant based on better promises needs to be compared to the covenant that came before it. Because as Hebrews 8 verse 7 says, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If there was no issue with the old covenant, then the writer to the Hebrews wouldn't be explaining the ins and outs of it, of the new one, and neither would I. But, verses 8 and 9, when God found fault with the people, he said, the day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand 
and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. Okay. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? The issue with the old covenant, it wasn't in the details of the covenant. It wasn't in the promises themselves. The problem with the old covenant was the people. The people of God were the fault. They were unfaithful to God's covenant with them. And that sounds about right, doesn't it? That sounds about like what God's people do. Speaking of that old covenant, Paul says in Romans 7 verse 12, talking about that covenant, he says, the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. And he goes on to say in verse 14, so the trouble then is not with the law for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me for I am all too human, a slave to sin. The problem with the old covenant was the unfaithfulness of God's people because of the sin in their hearts. Do you understand? The problem wasn't with God's promises, what he had said. The problem was with how the people behaved, how they followed their own sinful hearts. These are God's heartbreaking words over his people through the prophet Jeremiah. When I led your ancestors out of Egypt, it wasn't burnt offerings and sacrifices I wanted for them. That's something that God did ask of them in the covenant. But, he's Jesus, but God's saying, that's not the heart of what I was after. This is what I told them. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Do everything as I say and all will be well. That sounds simple. But my people would not listen to me. They kept doing whatever they wanted, following the stubborn desires of their evil hearts. They went backwards instead of forwards. From the day your ancestors left Egypt until now, I have continued to send my servants, the prophets, day in and day out. But my people have not listened to me or even tried to hear. They have been stubborn and sinful even worse than their ancestors. And you may think I'm laboring the point, but it's not. This is the problem with the old covenant. God's people cannot seem to keep it. To help us understand the gravity of this situation, I want to look at the the context of the old covenant promises just in a little bit more detail. So that we're not confused, this is the Mosaic Covenant, the agreement God gave to his people through Moses at Mount Sinai after he'd led them out of slavery to Egypt. It's recorded for us in Exodus 19. God says this to them, you know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, You will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. That is beautiful language. Special treasure. 
kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what God was promising to his people. There are three elements I want to look at. What God's done, what God required, and what God promised. So what God had done for Israel. He brought Moses and Israel out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai. He performed miracle after miracle in terms of provision and guidance and protection. He showed them his authority, his sovereignty, his mightiness, his salvation, his righteousness. The list goes on and on. He revealed himself to his people. The point is, God is saying to them, remember what I've done and by extension who I am. What God requires in the old covenant. This is the if part. In order that God's chosen people can continue to live in the reality of God's promises over them, God places an if, a condition on them. The SV translates one of those verses as, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Do you understand? God requires his people to obey him, to listen to his voice, and in that way keep his covenant. Like sheep with their shepherd, God's people need to listen to the voice of the shepherd through his instructions in the law. But this is still God's grace. This is not them earning God's blessing. This is not their human effort. The context of Israel here is God has already chosen them. Not because of anything they've done, but just because he has decided they will be his special treasured people. And his covenant promises over them are already fully available. They don't need to earn them. It's not that Israel can work hard to deserve them. It's that they never could deserve them. God's freely given them. And now Israel has to decide to walk in those promises or to stay in them by being obedient to his voice or to walk outside of those blessings and promises by ignoring God's voice and his instruction. And let's look at what he promises then. God promises that his chosen people will be his treasured possession. Even though he is the God of all things, possesses all things, he says Israel will be his favorite, his crown jewel, the apple of his eye. What a position that is. That's like, you know when you're your nan's favorite? Have any of you understood that? I'm going to tell you a little bit about my nan. Grandma Kratsky. She was a lovely lady. She was very wise. She was incredibly intelligent. She was very gentle. She was also unbelievably fierce. I cannot tell you. She was a, a very little Welsh lady. And I saw her stand up to a guy twice my height, probably when I was 13. There's not much difference. You can imagine. She stood up to him and she looked up to him and he, she said, you leave my grandson alone. And that I've never seen a nearly grown man <laughs> shaking because of this little old lady. But let me tell you this. I knew I was her favorite. She knew I was her favorite. My parents, they knew 
that I was her favourite. That was awkward at Christmas and birthdays. The worst thing is my brothers, they knew. I've got three brothers, they're all younger than me, but they knew I was her favourite. Because I had a front door key, right? And they didn't. I could let myself in when I liked. I could help myself to stuff in the fridge. In fact, the only stuff that was in the fridge was stuff that I liked. You understand what I'm saying? Favoritism. This is a small, tiny reflection of what it would be like to be God's favorites. Do you understand? God was saying, you guys are my chosen people. I'm going to treat you differently. And you're going to know it. The people around you are going to know it. And I'm going to know it. It meant special treatment by God. And they'd already witnessed it. They'd seen it in the plagues in Egypt. The parting of the Red Sea. The voice of God thundering these promises from Mount Sinai. God's special treatment. God promised them a purpose. He said they'd be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So not just the Levitical priests, not just the guys whose job it was to worship God and to lead people in worship. They would all be priests to God, serving God, representing him to the rest of the world. And they'd be holy. That means set apart for for him. Not giving themselves to any other God or any other priority. These are wonderful, beautiful words to a nation that had been a slave race for the entirety of their living memory. These are profound words about their value, dignity, and worth. And they were empowering words about their identity and purpose. This is what God promised to his people. And yet, as Hebrews 8 verse 9 reminds us, they did not remain faithful to my covenant. So I turned my back on them, says the Lord. They were unfaithful to God. They stepped outside of his covenant promises by giving themselves over to other gods. And they gave themselves over to the sinful practices of the surrounding nations that God had not called to be his people. You see, the problem with the old covenant is that it could not empower God's people to keep it. It couldn't save them from themselves. It couldn't save them from their own sinful hearts because that wasn't its function. The old covenant was designed to show God's people the nature and the extent of their sin and then drive them back in repentance to God. And throughout Old Testament history, some did repent, the remnant, the faithful few who, like David, had a heart after God's own heart. But even they knew and even they experienced the flaw in the old covenant, the sinful desires in the heart of God's people. Nevertheless, they looked forward to more. And then 500 years before Jesus, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of a new covenant, a greater covenant built on far greater promises. And it's this prophecy that's quoted in Hebrews 8, 10 to 12 that we've already looked at. He says, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
And they won't need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. 500 years before Jesus, God speaks through the mouth of his prophet so the people of God hear this beautiful message about a better covenant with better promises. And that remnant rejoiced. Those people who repented rejoiced. About 560 years later, the writer to the Hebrews says, that the moment God shared that revelation with Jeremiah, the old covenant began to fade away in anticipation of the new. Hebrews 8.13, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. To quote my dear friend John Richbell, out with the old, in with the new. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Galatians 3, 24 to 25. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. We don't need a guardian anymore because we have a saviour. One who has given us a better covenant built on better promises. If nothing else, you'll remember that phrase today, right? To finish our comparison of covenants and answer the question, how are the new promises better? Let's look at God's promises a little more closely in Hebrews. There are at least four in this section, and we're going to look at them in turn. Number one, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Guys, this is it. This promise is the remedy to the problem of the sinfulness of human hearts. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. He was like the go-between for Israel and God. But he was just a regular bloke. An ordinary human being like you and like me. But... As we've already heard this morning, Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. He is the go-between for us and God, and he is anything but regular and ordinary. He is the God-man who's done everything necessary to establish and secure these promises through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And that includes making a way to empower us to keep his covenant. You know, God wrote his first covenant on tablets of stone and he gave them to his people through Moses. But now Jesus, the greater Moses, has given us his spirit so that God can write the new covenant on our very hearts and minds. This is why the new covenant based on new promises is better. It addresses the fault, the flaw with the old covenant, the human factor. It's God's will and God's power at work in us that enables us to be faithful to him. 
It enables us to listen to God's voice and follow where he leads through our relationship with Jesus. Promise two, I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, this has been God's promise from the very beginning, but in the new covenant, it is unleashed in all of its glory over us. Not only will God continue to be God, almighty, unchanging one, but now, through his transforming power at work within our hearts and our minds, he has freed us from our slavery to sin. We do not have to be unfaithful to God anymore. Our sinful natures have no hold over us and we can continue to be faithful to God's covenant. We can keep moving forward, not backward. We can keep pressing on faithfully in our lives, walking in step with the Holy Spirit, following God's voice wherever he leads us until Jesus calls us home and he will declare over us, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that glorious? We can run our race and finish well because God's not only rooting for us, he is running right there with us, picking us up when we fall, setting us on our feet again. Promise three, they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. This is the greatest privilege we have as Christ followers. Not only are we known by the creator and sustainer of the universe, but we can know him. Through faith in Jesus, we can have a relationship with God himself. We don't have to stand around saying, it'd be great if we knew God, wouldn't it? Gee, I really wish I knew what God was like. The Bible says, if you know Jesus, then you know God. And I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter if you're Oxford or Cambridge educated, or like me, you were homeschooled in your parents' garage. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, or you came into the world without two pennies to rub together. From the least to the greatest, you can know Jesus and therefore you can know God. There is no partiality with God. He doesn't play favorites among his favorites. You understand? Isn't that incredible? You get to know God, the one who is before all things and through whom all things were created. The purpose of all existence is to know him, and we get to do that. Promise number four. You're going to have to forgive me if I get an emotional on this one because this one smashed me up when I was prepping. I will forgive your wickedness, says God, and I will never again remember your sins. You know, when people wrong me, I can forgive them. That's fine, don't worry. We're done. It's okay, we can carry on. I tell you something, it's a lot harder to forget still going to be there in the back of my mind every time I see that person. Over time, that can go away. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, can you imagine what it's like to forget 
someone's wrong. These are the sweetest and most beautiful words you will ever hear. And this is the most life-changing promise you will ever be given. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, because Jesus died in your place and for your sin, i.e. for your wickedness, God says, I will forgive your wickedness. You get me? Every wicked thought or action in your life, every moment of sinful selfishness, every hurtful deed or spiteful word, everything that separates you from a sinless, holy God and destines you to the pit of hell is forgiven by God through Jesus. Do you understand? There is nothing that separates you from God because you have been forgiven and your sins have been forgotten. That means it's as if it never happened. What? There are things in my life that I am so, so guilty of and I am so sorry for. But my heavenly father has seen that and then he died on the cross to forgive me for that. I don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. That's God's grace. Again, this is his undeserved favor over each of you. Guys, these are better promises for a better covenant. Amen? Can I have the band up as I come, as I come in now? As I come into land, let's just go over it. What answers to the questions do we have that we started with? What's a covenant? The answer is a commitment between two parties based on promises. In our case, between God and us. Who's making promises? The answer is God through Jesus. How are they better? (laughs) Well, unlike the old covenant, the new covenant empowers God's people to live holy lives that are faithful to God's covenant itself. It gives everyone equal access to God through Jesus. And through him, God actually forgives our sins and then forgets them completely. I just want to end with this thought. In case case you were tempted to think that God's original promises remained unfulfilled or forgotten. Think again. Because although God forgets our sins, he always remembers his promises and he is fulfilling them in and through us 1 Peter 2 you are a chosen people you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation God's very own possession As a result, you can now show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness and into his glorious light. Once you had no identity as a people. Now you are God's people. Once you'd received no mercy, now you've received God's mercy. Amen? 
Let's stand. We're going to worship the God who has purchased a better covenant for us based on better promises with his blood. I have a possible word for someone here. As I was talking about grace, that's that undeserved favor of God that he wants to do stuff for you that you didn't deserve, like forgiving your sins. As I was talking about that, I believe somebody is grasping that for the first time or maybe hearing it afresh and just it is doing them so much good this morning. And I want to, see, I want to say God knows what's going on in your heart because he showed me that you've heard about that song about amazing grace and you've often heard it played at funerals and you've thought, that's a very, that's a deep, dark, dirgy song. But I'm going to read to you the, a couple of lines from Amazing Grace because this is the excitement. This is an explosive, powerful, worshipful song of somebody who understands what God has done for them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. I pray, Lord, as we worship you now, the God who has bought for us a better covenant with better promises by your blood. Fill us with your spirit, I pray. Let us raise an aroma of worship to you this morning that pleases you. And I pray, Lord, that you stir our hearts in gratitude for your amazing grace that has been poured on wretches like us so that we are now a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Amen.